0: Open our hearts to the word and feed us. We love the word of God. It is bread to our soul. We ask today to understand with faith. And I ask for grace to let you speak your word today in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation chapter 1 verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. Now, I'll stop there. It's the revelation of Jesus. It's all about Him. It's revealing who Jesus is, basically, which God the Father gave to His Son to give to His bondservants, which you'll find out later are the prophets. So, Jesus is giving this to the prophets so they can explain it to the churches. The things which must soon take place. Would you say things which must soon take place? And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John. So Jesus sends it accompanied by an angel to guard over its transmission and to assist John in comprehending it. And you see that angel standing with John, explaining things to him all the way through it. So there's actually an angel present. And by the way, you'll also see he sends it to the angel of the church of Ephesus, the angel of the church of Sardis. All kinds of things are said. No, there's an angel that accompanies the the, the prophetic revelation to assist the church to understand. There's a real angel. I trust there's an angel of the Church of Northwest. Amen. He is most welcome. Who, and then to his bondservant, John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. Literally, the Greek says, who witnessed to the word of God and the witness of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So John says, I gave you everything that was given to me from Christ. I have accurately... Witness to it and borne witness to the revelation he has shown me. And verse 3 Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed, do, and obey the things which are written in it. For the time is near. Would you say, for the time is near? There are two statements in these verses which have long troubled me. They are the things which must soon take place, and the time is near. If these words are taken to refer to chapters 4 through 22, and I assumed they did, it would seem that they are inaccurate because they culminate in the physical return of Jesus Christ, who after nearly 2,000 years has not yet appeared. Trying to argue that God thinks of 2,000 years as soon isn't convincing, at least not to me. So, I mean, have anyone else in the room struggled with this a little bit? You read this I'm coming quickly, I'm coming soon, look out, here it comes. And that was two thousand years ago, and you think either your your way of interpreting soon is different than my way, or this was wrong. And I, I, I don't believe anything in the book is wrong. And I have struggled with this. And I thought, how could you have missed it? I mean, by any stretch of any imagination, two thousand years isn't soon. You say, well, good, uh, oh no, uh, but as a day is a thousand years, so it's only two days for God. Oh right, you know that. that that is just, uh, that's extrapolating something. Uh, 2,000 years in human history is a long time. I'm sorry, it is. And so if that's what it meant, then it missed. It was wrong. And then here's what God showed me. God showed me the structure and the, and the makeup of, of the book of Revelation. And as he has done that, all of a sudden, I, I, it, it makes total sense by no, stretch, no stretching at all. Let me read on. When I finally understood the purpose and structure of the book of Revelation, those words made perfect sense to me. They became a powerful warning and a wonderful promise. What did I discover? I recognized that those words, along with similar words at the end of the book, I give you those references, were addressed to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. And after reading what the Lord said to them, it became clear that what would soon take place were not the events surrounding the Lord's physical return at the end of the age, but his coming in spirit to judge five of the churches if they did not repent and strengthen two who were facing a serious religious persecution. To state it simply, what was near wasn't the physical return of Jesus Christ, but a visitation of severe discipline to five of the churches and an intense persecution of two. But his his words weren't meant just for these first century churches." The problems they experienced continue to trouble us today in one form or another. We can use their example to examine our own faith and conduct and thereby avoid repeating their failures or facing their punishments. Let me show you what I mean. These things are not last day's events. They are very temporal events that are happening in in time and history in in that church's life. Go with me to Revelation 2. I'm going to just sample and show the, 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 the trend to you so you get a feel for it. This is the letter to the church in Ephesus. He says, and, and these are five, or seven historic congregations in what is now western Turkey. It's Asia Minor. And they, are, they were congregations not too far from where John was located on the Isle of Patmos in exile for his preaching. All right, he says this. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Another time, I'll tell you what that means. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen, and repent, and do the deeds which you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place. I will take the anointing of the Holy Spirit for revelation out of the church. The Spirit will leave. Ichabod, you will have the Spirit depart. That's horrible, but it's not last day stuff. All right, go to go to the next one, Revelation two ten. This is his words to the church in Smyrna. Now they are a church that's under physical persecution. So to them he gives he encourages them. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison, so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for ten days, limited but a serious period of time. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And indeed, they were about to face a terrible physical persecution. Go on down to 14. Here is the church at Pergamum. Listen to what he says to them. I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam. Do you recall Balaam? He was, he was a true prophet of God, actually came from Mesopotamia, but a true prophet of God. And... The Moabite king hired him saying, I want you to cast a curse on Israel as they was coming into the land. They stood on these mountaintops looking at Israel, camped out in the valley, and Balaam desperately wanted to curse them because he was going to get a lot of money for it, but the, the God wouldn't allow him to. Well, the story goes on, and what actually happened is Balaam, in desiring to please the Moabite king to get the money told him, listen, I can't curse Israel, but I can tell you how to get them cursed. He said, if you, if you lure them into, sexual, into, into worshiping other gods and sexual immorality, God himself will judge them. And so they did that. They sent the, they sent the, the women down uh, near the camps, and they began to invite them into the sexual activity of, the, of these religious things of worshiping Baal of Peor. And the men came. And God indeed struck the camp. And God never forgets. So Balaam is a byword for a prophet who takes their their spiritual uh, gifting and uses it to corrupt the people of God, not to protect them and to heal them. So it's what a false, greedy prophet will do when, when, when their flesh leads them. So he says, some of you have hold the teaching of Balaam, and here's what he did, who kept teaching Balak, that's that Moabite king, to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat the things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. That's exactly what happened. So you also have some who, who in the way, Hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans, which is that teaching that allows for this. I'll explain it later. Therefore, repent or else I'm coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He's coming to do what? Not return in the clouds. He's coming to bring a visitation of discipline. He's going to speak judgment on this church. Now let your eye go further. Let's look at uh, Thyatira for a second. Verse 20. I have this against you. That you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray, so that they commit acts of immorality and things, eat, to eat things sacrificed to idols. Just one insert one thought. The culture out of which these people are coming is built around the pagan temples. They go into these great gatherings. They eat these, have these feasts that are, where the things are sacrificed to the idols. And there is, there is cultic prostitution, both male and female. It's part of the religion. Imagine that. And, and so people are... You know, their mothers, their fathers, their aunts, their uncles are saying, Come on to the temple with us. Come on. Come on. You can't not be part of the fall festival. And so the people, these Christians are being lured. And some prophet is saying... It's okay, you're free in Christ, or whatever. Some justification is being given to allow them to enter back in to these practices. Listen to what he says. He says, I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. I will throw her on a bed of sickness. That's not last day's stuff. That's temporal judgment. And those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds... And I will kill her children with pestilence. That's contagious disease. Some sort of disease will sweep through. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. You see what I'm saying? I'll stop there. But there's the others you have the references. Those are not the return of Christ. Those are Jesus visiting his church to bring discipline. I am coming quickly. The time is near. This is a prophetic warning. There is quite a difference between the ongoing discipline, training, refining, which God sends to every believer, we saw that in Hebrews 12, and the severe discipline, adversity, meant to correct us, being threatened against five of these seven churches. It would seem from these prophecies that there are thresholds of disobedience, which if crossed, bring a disciplinary visit from Jesus. You see where we're going? Where else do we see this? Is this an isolated thing? Did John have a bad day and get crabby? Let's see. Go with me to Acts 5. You see, the natural thought is, well, that's Old Testament stuff. God, God really zapped him back then, but he's nice now. Well, he is nice. But he's unchanging. Yes, he's unchanging. Acts 5.1. You have here... Ananias and Sapphira, a couple in the early church, this is very early in the church's life, and they have watched Barnabas, who we know wrote the book of Hebrews, they've watched Barnabas sell a piece of land back in Cyprus, which is his home, and take the money and use it to support Christians who've been thrown out of their families because of their faith in Christ. Many people were poor because they were being disinherited, they were losing their jobs, their families, because of their faith in Christ, this religious persecution. Well, apparently, everybody really applauded Barnabas. Well, he did it right from a pure heart. They thought, this is a good idea. So a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira, verse 1, sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself and his, with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, there's nothing wrong with him giving only a portion of the sale price. Only he presents it as though he's giving all. Because there's something corrupt in him. There's, there's a lack of fear of God. And he literally wants the approval and the, the, the adulation. And it's too early in the church's life to have that kind of corruption at her in. But Peter said to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the early, to the Holy Spirit? and keep back some of the price of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you've conceived this deed in your heart, and you have not lied to men, but to God? And as he heard these words, Ananias did what? Fell he fell down and breathed his last. He dies on the spot. And great fear came over all who heard of it. Can you, can you imagine the offerings uh, after that? <laughs> wow. Wow. I don't know, the budget's up. Um, the young men got up and covered him and carried him out and buried him. And there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. She said, Yes, that was the price. And then Peter said to her, Why is it you have agreed together to put the test, the Holy Spirit, to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they'll carry you out as well. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. Religious hypocrisy was being planted at the heart of the early church. So God stopped it and put a healthy fear in the church. By the way, I believe that when the power of God is strongly present to do miracles of healing and wonders, he's also strongly present this way. So you want to get in a dead church. If you're going to be a hypocrite, you're much safer. I'm serious. I've actually been in, I know of situations where this is, never mind, never mind. And I'm not, okay. Okay. First, go with me to 1 Corinthians 5. This, this again, is not, even a, it's not an isolated situation. This is New Testament stuff. This is not Old Testament stuff. It's New Testament stuff. Here we have, in the church of Corinth, the circumstance where a young man had moved in with his father's young wife, very likely. You know, there are people that you died often of all kinds of things. And so his, his older father has married a young woman. That was often common. He's married a young woman. And his son has fallen in love with his wife. The two have run off together and are living together and still coming to church. So that lovely couple in the third row, and, and forgive me, third row, the <laughs> lovely couple in the third row was shacking up. And, and, and not only that, but he's with his father's wife. There's just complete disrespect in this thing. And the church is saying nothing. They're just going on like nothing happened. And, and Paul hears of it, and here's what he says. Chapter 5, verse 1. It's actually reported that there's immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not even exist among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned. Instead, that, you, that the one who had done this deed, would be removed from your midst. You should have confronted, called for repentance, and if he refused, you should have put him out of the church, his discipline. I, on my part, and he's on the other side of the GNC at the moment, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has also committed this, as though I were present. And in the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul says, I have sought the Lord. I know this is true. And he has taken and removed the spiritual covering off of this man. Imagine, even in his immorality as part of the church, there is a covering over him even in his sin. See that? It's a remarkable feature. So, Paul says, I'm stripping that back, allowing the devil to attack his body to bring him to a place of crisis so he will repent and his spirit will be saved in the day of the Lord. May I point out that none of this kind of thing would would be conceivable or make any sense at all unless it were possible to backslide and lose your salvation. You just don't do those sorts of things. The only thing that makes sense of this is that it is possible for a Christian to get so seduced, so engaged, so enslaved back into things that they are literally dragged back. And so emergency measures are going on. Notice his goal. It's not to punish the man. We're going to get him for what he did. It had nothing to do with it. So his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. How dare you let him be deceived like this? Because those who practice such things, he will say elsewhere, will not inherit the kingdom of God. You can't game God. The grace of God doesn't mean you can game him. And so the warning is there. Let's look at one more. Chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. Now, I, when we serve communion here, I often encourage you to take communion out to other people. And I say, well, read from 1 Corinthians 11. That's a good one. I said, but don't read the whole passage because there's stuff there that make them nervous. And this is what I mean, and I'm going to explain to you why, what, what was going on. The Corinthian church, believe it or not, would gather and the wealthy people would go into the houses. They're small, they can't take everybody. So they'll go into the houses and the poor people are left out in the courtyard. When they served communion, they would serve it to the wealthy and give nothing to the poor. And not only would they serve it to the wealthy, but the wealthy were literally getting drunk on the communion wine and feeding themselves, gorging themselves, having a meal off of the communion bread. They are disregarding the body of Christ as the bread and the cup. They are just, they're blaspheming, as it were, uh, his very body. And they are blaspheming the body, the human body of Christ, ignoring that we are all one. And that there's no separation. They're putting the poor outside. And they've built factions into their midst. Uh, And and so when they take communion, look what's happening. And that's what he explains. And we'll go down to verse 29. He who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself. This kind of communion, this debauchery, Paul says, actually brings the judgment of God on you. If he does not judge the body rightly, the, the human body and the physical body, as it were, of Christ, in his, on, his cro- on the cross, which rep- is represented in the bread and the cup. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. A nice way of saying dead. The judgment of God has literally come on this church and people are getting sick and dying under the, his judgment because of this kind of blasphemous disregard of the body of Christ. Why is Jesus willing to act so severely? Well, first of all, it's clear. To bring someone back to him because they've stopped listening to his voice. These are emergency measures. They are not his normal way of dealing with us. I pointed out, this type of discipline only makes sense if it's possible for a person to backslide and lose their salvation. From God's perspective, that is far worse than even death. I would agree with him, would you? Secondly, to prevent others from corrupt, prevent someone from corrupting others. Jesus says it is better to have a millstone tied around your neck and cast into the sea than that you would take the faith of another person at all. Don't ever tamper with another person's faith. Do not. And there's something about unbelief and, immor- and immorality that it's like, a, like having the flu. It's contagious. And people can never be silent about their thing. They always begin to take their war to other people, and corrupt and corrode the faith of other people, and God will stop it. He is a a saving God, and a loving God, and he will not let you take his children without a battle. Paul tells us God's motive in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 31 and 32. Paul, and it's just right there if you're still in 11. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. Would you say that with me? But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. Again, but if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. There's a clear motive here. God is out to bring us back to Him. Not punish us. This isn't about punishment. He's out to make it so rough We want to change. Would you notice? We determine who judges us. If we judge ourselves rightly, God won't. Now, I think that's worth picking up on. And I'm very serious about that. I believe that. One of the reasons we put communion across regularly, we take it once a month as a church, is simply one opportunity to judge ourselves rightly. Oh, we take those minutes, you know, while we're serving, we just say, let the Holy Spirit now show your heart. We, and, and if Christians are simply saying to him, Lord, whatever you find here, whatever you see, please show it to me. Healthy Christians regularly repent. You don't repent once and then kind of go on. It's a part of our life. Lord, wherever my attitudes have corrupted, wherever I've gotten selfish or cruel, or the lusts or the fears or the anger, whatever's going on, show it to me, Lord. Let's unload it. We are not afraid of that. We have enormous mercy. We have enormous covering in Christ. We're not at all afraid. The problem is when the heart starts hardening. When the heart hardens and I begin to say, I'm going to do this and nobody's going to stop me. Not God or anybody. Now I'm beginning to harden and I dull my ears. I dull my eyes that I might not be corrected. It's what he talks about, Jesus, in Matthew 13. Now I'm in danger. Now I begin to do something to myself, literally. Also, by the way, and don't you notice it, when you worship, particularly on corporate worship for me, when, when we're worshiping and the presence of the Lord is strong, uh, it's not unusual for him to bring up something and say, Stephen, your attitude here, you've been acting very fearfully, you're 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 angry or whatever. Stuff just comes to my mind. Not at a big scolding. He's not shaking his finger at me and saying, you bad boy. It's just Stephen. Let's get that out. There's some disease here. Some some infection. Let's just get that out. Says, yes, Lord. I, I take communion uh, every every week. I did last night. I, uh, whenever I'm free, I'll, I'll often... I mean, I'll always take it practically on a weekend. And I'm just... Lord, my heart. Just cleanse my heart. Am I afraid? No. But neither... Am I afraid of weeds? I wouldn't say I was afraid of them, but I don't like them. And and as they grow in my garden, I pull them out. It's no more complicated than that. I don't run under some paranoia, but I pull them out because if I let them go, they just get bigger and more and more and more. How does God warn us? I want you to see, this is very important. There is a progressive process of warning that goes on with God. By the time you get to this kind of severe discipline, you have gone through an enormous number of stop signs. You do not come to this, where he's severely disciplining like this, without having run all sorts of stop signs to get there. God carefully warns us long before he ever brings such discipline. Severe discipline is a last resort Knowing this allows us to distinguish between afflictions he sends and those that come from a spiritual attack or natural causes. Here's what's important. God does not just slap you up with some kind of thing where you didn't expect it. You must know that because people have a tendency when something happens, they get sick, some kind of problem comes into their life, they'll say, God must be mad at me. What did I do wrong? As though God is going, wham, what are you doing, kid? That's a dysfunctional father that does that. He is not a dysfunctional father. If God is dealing with you severely, you know it. (laughs) And you know how you got there. You know you've defied him. And you know you've put yourself in jeopardy. By the time this takes place, you're walking on thin ice and you know it. Please know that. Because God does not send... The, the disease and the problems and the things we have in our life. These are not punishments that suddenly show up. This is an extreme situation. Can he do it and will he? Yes, if you're that stubborn. I, I don't have time. But in Second Chronicles 24, there's the story of a, of, a, a young, of, a, of a king named Joash. I'll just tell it to you quickly and you can read it later. It's worth reading. He is, becomes king at a very young age. He's just a child. And so Israel appoints an overseer for him, someone to care for him. And it's Jehoiada, the high priest. And Jehoiada raises little Joash and trains him in the ways of the Lord. And Joash becomes, while Jehoiada is alive, a fine king. He's a good king. He gets rid of the false stuff. He's a godly man. But when Jehoiada dies, the elders of Israel come and they bow down to him, flattering him. And encourage him to let the old worship of the Asherim and, and the Baal. Now, I'm not going to describe this. But the Asherim, Asherah are these terrible statues of women. And I'm not going to describe it. They're very vulgar. It's very sexual. It has to do with Baal and Asherah. And you have these, these uh, sexual acts as part of the worship. It, he allows it back into Israel. And actually, they have some of them in the temple. Can you imagine that? <laughs> Whoa. And... Uh, Okay, Second Chronicles twenty-two. Come on, quick! It's right after First Chronicles. I want to help you get there fast. I'm gonna I'll just show you this quick, just so you, so you so you can see. Here is an example of God's progressive discipline, finally ending up getting harder and harder. Verse 17, after the death of Jehoiada, the officials of Judah came and bowed to the king and the king listened to them. They abandoned the house of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and served the Asherim and the idols. So the wrath of, came upon Judah and Jerusalem for this guilt. Yet they, he sent what? Verse 19, see it? Prophets. He doesn't slap them up. He doesn't just deal with them. He sends prophets. who speak to them and appeal to them. You know their heart's already been convicting them. Prophets to bring them back to the Lord, yet they, though they testified against them, they would not listen. And then the Spirit of the Lord came on Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada. This is like a brother to Joash. It's Jehoiada's son. He's been raised with him. And Jehoiada stands up in the temple and he, dec- and he denounces what's going on. And Joash gives permission and they stone him and kill him right in the temple between the altar and the temple itself. Jesus refers to this in Matthew 23. It's it's one of the abominations of Israel's history. This young man raised in the Lord like this. And then watch what goes on. So they conspired, verse 21, against him. Oh, pardon me. I I want to go farther. Uh, 23. It came about at the turn of the year that the army of the Arameans came up against him. And they came to Judah and Jerusalem and destroyed all the officials of the people from among the people and sent all their spoil to the king of Damascus. Well, that's too bad, but it's not unusual, except verse 22 explains what happened. Indeed, the army of the Arameans came with a small number of men. Yet the Lord delivered a very great army into their hands, because they had forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers. Thus they executed judgment on Joash. God will will grieve your spirit, he will confront us by the written word. He will bring prophetic warning through people. He will even bring circumstantial hardship where he miraculously works against us. It was a miracle that this little army could beat a big one. God's actually helping your opponent. Divine opposition. And then notice, and when they had departed, verse 25 from him, they, for they left him very sick. Do you see it? Now he's ill. His own servants conspired against him because of the blood of the son of Jehoiada and murdered him on his bed. Now we have death. And that doesn't even stop it. So he died and they buried him in the city of David. But they did not bury him in the tombs of the kings. Even in death he has dishonor. There's a progression. There's a progression that goes on. What sins bring severe discipline? All sins do not carry the same moral gravity. A popular misconception is that all sin is the same. Nonsense. This comes from philosophical reasoning, not the clear witness of Scripture. All sins bring death, but some bring it much faster than others. Some are severely addictive. Some quickly alienate us from God. Some badly injure others. The Lord is compassionate toward our temptations and weaknesses. He is merciful to our sins, but persistent immorality, corrupting others... And spiritual disloyalty will provoke him to act. He knows our heart better than we do. He knows when we know what we're doing is wrong. He knows when we quit fighting the temptation and give into it. He knows when our faith has decayed into a memory, even though we may keep talking like a Christian. He knows when we've hardened our heart to his voice and deceived ourselves into believing our rebellion is okay with God. He knows when the addiction has successfully enslaved us. And as a loving parent, he's willing to discipline us if he has to. But remember, we never have to experience this type of discipline. We are the ones who determine if God must deal with us severely. If the grieving of the Spirit, the light of his word, or prophetic warning is enough, that's all we'll ever get. The visitation we read about here in Revelation is an extreme situation. Much water has passed under the bridge to come to this level of warning. Those who repent quickly will be spared all of this even then. Now let's apply it to ourselves. All of us deal with temptations on a daily basis. All of us stumble at times in need of fresh washing of His mercy by repenting and reminding ourselves of the cross. Yet these passages warn us not to confuse God's mercy with indifference nor His patience with a lack of will to discipline. It's remarkable to think that someone who knows what Christ has done for them on the cross and who at some point surrendered their independence and rebellion, giving him the right to lead and change them, would ever become so seduced by sin or deceived by false teaching that God would be forced to lift his his protection and allow adversity to trouble them. But passages like these make it clear that this can happen. There is also a comforting truth here, if we have eyes to see it, God won't let us go without a fight. Aren't you glad? Do you want him to let you go over the cliff, sort of passively going bye-bye? I don't. If he needs to, I, I want him to discipline me severely. I want to go to heaven. I want eternal life. I do not, I don't ever plan to get in that place. But if somehow I were seduced by something, if somehow I began to be confused and deceived, I want my father coming after me. I want my father rescuing me. I want him to put up signs I can't miss. He won't be passive if we, if we foolishly put ourselves in danger. Thankfully, he'll discipline us so we'll not be condemned along with the world. Now, I want to make a caution once more because I know what can happen. It's worth repeating that just because sickness or hardship might come into our life, this does not mean God is disciplining us. As we've said, severe discipline comes only after we put ourselves or others in extreme spiritual danger. To get to that point, we had to refuse every appeal to repent and knowingly press on with our sin. In that case, God may send such adversity, but that's the only reason He'll ever send it to a believer. Somebody say amen to that. Amen. It's true He causes all things to work for our good, but He doesn't, doesn't mean He sends all things. The things he uses to discipline an obedient child, trials of faith and persecution, are quite different from the things he uses to discipline a rebellious or deceived child. The severe discipline we read about here in these chapters was meant to protect believers who had put themselves or others in jeopardy of an eternal judgment that would be far worse. Now, listen to Jesus as we close. This is Revelation 3.19. And notice something. He speaks it not to an unbelieving world. This isn't an invitation to an unbelieving world. It serves a good one. But it was to the church. He says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Who does he get reprove and discipline? Yeah. All of this is because of his love. It's because of spiritual reality and his love. Therefore, he says, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Jesus says, you've put me out. You've put me out of the house, and I'm at the door, and I'm knocking. And if you will just repent and open the door, I will come into you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Would you stand with me? I would appreciate it if you just bow your heads a minute. I'm going to ask one question but I, I think it's the sort we ought to give each other privacy on. I, I've talked about this severe discipline and I've said that the Lord loves us so much that he will not allow us to continue on a, on a course. His, if we judged ourselves rightly, we never have to face that. And this is a moment, the word's been preached, the presence of God is here strongly. And it would just be one of those moments where you, it, there might be some here who you know you're on a wrong course and you've had stop signs and you've run some of those stop signs. There's been the grieving of the heart. There's been, you know, what's in the word. You've even had maybe some prophets and they may have even been unbelievers was speaking the word of the Lord to you. Or another believer has come and concerned. And you told him the to judge not lets you be judged and you were gonna do what you're gonna do. And and yet as you listen today, you realize, you know, I don't want to continue on this course. I don't want to have to get to the place where he's severely dealing with me. I can I can I'm choosing to repent. I don't know what I was thinking, but I, I'm repenting today. Now you may have things that are very powerful and difficult for you to, to manage. That's not the question today. The thing you can handle is your will. God must supply the power and he must help you. And we must too, for that matter. But if there's anger or fears or, 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 or addictive behaviors, if there's things going on in your life where unbelief or false doctrine, you've been entertaining it, you've really been going and allowing that stuff to have its way. And right now, you say, you know, I'm done with it. I'm just not going there. We're not going to pursue this any farther down that road. Is there anyone who needs to raise their hand and say, I'm done today. I heard the word of the Lord and I'm going to repent and I'm going to walk with the Lord. Yes, go right ahead. I've, I've, been, I've had hands in every service, numerous ones. Blessed be the Lord. Go ahead and just hold your hand because I'm going to we're going to pray in a minute. This is important. If you know this, this is, this is a wonderful moment. It's a moment in which the Holy Spirit has gotten through to us and we see in the light of those words and we're able to Judge ourselves rightly so he doesn't have to and just put our, back on course and that's the way he wants it. Anyone else? Anyone else? You've got to say, okay, I know, it's me. I've been on a wrong course and, I, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm done today. All right, just, just keep your hands as, as it were for a minute. Dear Heavenly Father, right now we come to you as we lift our hand before you and we say your word is like a two-edged sword and it opens our hearts and it has today. Lord, your word has opened us up and shown us that we have allowed deception or immorality. We've allowed false teaching, false things somehow to come in and corrode us. And you've been warning us and we acknowledge you've been faithful. We acknowledge you, Holy Spirit. You've, you've never let up on us or stopped caring for us for a minute. But we were hardening our heart. We were deafening our ears. We were covering our eyes that we would not see or hear your confession confrontation. This day that comes down. This day that breaks. This day the deception is exposed for what it is. This day the temptations and lies are are acknowledged for what they are. And the bondage is acknowledged for a destructive thing. It's not a friend. It's not part of our life. This is deadly and we know it. Now our Father, we need your power. We need your help and we need the family of God. We can't walk rightly or freely without them. But today, our will is this. We renounce this thing. We renounce it. We call it sin. We call it false. We call it what it is. And we will not follow it or listen to its lies anymore. It will not lure us on anymore. We are free in Christ. We are free. And we will walk with you. We repent. Forgive us. Forgive us for our refusal. Forgive us for our stubbornness and have mercy upon us, Father. Thank you for Jesus who bears our sins and washes them away. Thank you that as we, as we open the door, he will come into us and sup with us and we with him. Welcome, Jesus. Welcome into our hearts as Lord, as holy, righteous, pure Lord. You are welcome again into this heart. Blessed be he who is able to keep us from falling and to present us without without any blame before his glorious throne with great joy. You who are able to keep us, thank you for laying hold of us this day. In the mighty name of Jesus Christ, we pray it. And if that's your prayer, would you say amen? Amen. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, Please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.